0: Now, Polycarp was a Christian in the early church. And when I say the early church, I mean that Polycarp was blessed to sit under the teaching of the Apostle John. And as all the apostles died out, Polycarp himself became a well-known bishop, pastor, leader in the church. But when he became an old man, persecution had broken out against the Christians by Rome. And so Polycarp knew that his time would come. Sure enough, one day a group of soldiers burst into the room where he was sitting. But he didn't run, he didn't beg for his life, he didn't try and put up a fight. Instead, he asked for food to be brought in for the soldiers. Then he asked those soldiers if he could pray for just one hour. Well, they were so impressed with him, they let him pray for two hours. As I was reading his story, I, I wish that we, we could have known some of the things that a saint like this had prayed. Because what happened next was really incredible. Polycarp was taken to a large Roman arena where a big crowd was eagerly waiting for the execution of another Christian. And the Roman proconsul, who was presiding over this evil affair looked at Polycarp and demanded that he curse Jesus Christ if he wanted to save his own life. Polycarp looked at him and said, 86 years I've served Jesus and he's never done any wrong to me. So how can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Well, the proconsul didn't like that, so he demanded that Polycarp swear to Caesar. Polycarp looked at him and said, you're pretending like you don't know who I am. So listen very carefully. I am a Christian. That really upset the proconsul, So he threatened to unleash wild beasts on Polycarp if he wouldn't repent. He said, go ahead and unleash the beast. How can I repent of what's right and turn to what's wrong? So finally, the proconsul said that if he would not repent of these things, if he would not recant his faith, he would be burned alive. Polycarp looked at him and said, that fire, that fire burns for an hour and then it's quenched. But you, you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment." And the eternal punishment stored up for the ungodly. You do what you want. So they took Polycarp to a local marketplace. They tied him to a stake. They laid the wood out while he prayed. And then they lit the fire under him. And they say that when those flames rose up, they didn't touch Polycarp at all. And that so angered the people there, the executioner came and he stabbed Polycarp to death. Until his blood ran out, extinguished the flames, and that's how he died. Church, this world has always hated Christians. And persecution is not a thing of the past. Last year, over 5,600 Christians worldwide were killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. Even in a free country like ours, the hatred of Jesus and his followers, it increases day by day. And this shouldn't surprise us or shock us, believers. Jesus said that these things would happen. But this week, I kept thinking about something else that Jesus had said. Uh, Not long before Jesus was arrested and put to death on the cross, Jesus, Jesus prayed, and his prayers recorded for us. In John chapter 17, he was praying for his followers, and this is what Jesus prayed to the Father. He said, my prayer is not that you take them out of this world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus knew everything that was going to happen for his followers, but he prayed that they wouldn't be taken out of the world, but that we would be protected from the evil one. Believers, the evil one, Satan, is called in Ephesians chapter 2, the prince of the power of the air. He's been granted this limited and temporary reign and power in this world. As such, Christians, that means we are going to face difficult times for our faith in this life. We will. This world and our enemy, the devil, are going to oppose us at every turn. But remember, Jesus didn't plan to take us away from all these things right away. And we weren't called to shrink away in fear, to hide in our faith, or to blend in with the world. We've been called to live boldly for Jesus Christ. We've been called to live righteously in this life and to boldly share the gospel with others to the very end, just like Polycarp did. And so this morning, as we turn to Romans chapter 16, as we conclude this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, I want us to consider three keys to living in enemy territory in this world. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn me to Romans chapter 16. Romans 16. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to use one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you. If you'd like to use one of those, you can turn to page 923. Page 923, Romans chapter 16 been a couple weeks since we were in Romans. Last time, Paul sent a, a greetings to a number of Christians in Rome. Now Paul writes this. Romans 16, beginning in verse 17. It says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions, put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the mind's naive people." Let's stop here for just a minute. Paul urged them to watch out for false teachers. That's what he's saying. And For some reason, this is a warning that a lot of Christians today don't seem to take very seriously. Now, keep in mind, these people that Paul's talking about, they weren't walking into churches, walking down the aisle, tearing out pages of Bibles and telling people to worship Satan. We, we don't need a, a lot of warnings about the obvious pagans in the world. The false teachers that Paul's talking about, now they're more subtle than that. These individuals are very cunning. These wolves don't run in showing their teeth. They're wearing sheep's clothing. They blend in. In fact, false teachers, they, they tend to be quite likable. They draw you in with their smooth talk and with their polished speaking. In fact, they find ways to have elevated positions in churches, behind pulpits, and Sunday school classes. And they use just enough Bible verses and even handle some of them correctly that that well-meaning but immature Christians are, are slowly deceived by them. Soon people have been so captivated by the personality and the growing popularity of the teacher that they buy into every single teaching that they hear. Many naive Christians have been led astray by these these swindlers, these these wolves in sheep clothing that don't spare the flock. Church history is filled with them. Let me give you an example. In the 3rd century A.D., there was a man who we now know as Paul of Samosata. Paul of Samosata. And this this Paul became the leader of the church in Antioch. And there was something something special about him that the people saw. Uh, He could just draw you in. When he spoke, by all accounts, Paul of Samosata was a powerful preacher. All oh, the people were excited when he got in the pulpit. They couldn't wait to shout their amens. They couldn't wait for him to get going. But there was a problem. He was a false teacher. Now, like all false teachers, Paul of Samosata was—he uh, well, was obsessed with himself. He was greedy. He was eager for the praise of people. He was promiscuous, and all of those things made him a terrible leader and disqualified him as a preacher. But what made him a false teacher is that he was a heretic. He taught things to the people like uh, he taught that Jesus didn't exist from eternity past. He taught that Jesus, well, he's a mere man, not the divine son of God. He denied the Trinity. These are some of the things that he taught to the people. Now, we would think, that's crazy that the people would listen to that. But understand, like all successful false teachers... Paul of Samosata, he brought these things in gradually to the people. And then he mixed these teachings into things like the hymns that they sang so that slowly he caught the Christians unaware. Praise God, eventually he was marked as a false teacher. He was removed from office. But Christians, my, my point is this. False teachers, they still exist. They're still behind pulpits in churches. They're, still, they're on TV. They're on social media. They spew all sorts of trash and call it truth. Listen to how Jude described them. In Jude chapter 1, verse 4, he called such individuals ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. See, these false teachers, they're children of the devil. They're they're agents of the enemy and they need to be recognized and removed so that we can rescue the believers who have been persuaded by them. See, if we don't, people like that, they're going to pollute the church. They're going to divide God's people, and then they will destroy congregations. Now, here's the thing. The way that we identify false teachers is also one of the keys to living victoriously in enemy territory, and it's this. We need to be in Scripture, believers. Not just on Sundays. As believers, we need to be in Scripture. How do you know when someone is teaching something that's false? you know by knowing what the truth is. And why do so many naive Christians fall prey to false teachings? It's because they don't know God's word. And it's because they don't look to see if what they're being taught is in God's word. Church, I have said this before and I will say it again. Anything that you hear from me or anyone teaching the Bible, you need to take that and measure it against the Bible. You see, it doesn't matter what Andrew Kropp thinks really doesn't. It matters what God's Word says. And there are reasons that I encourage you on Sunday to open your Bibles. All right? I want you to see that what I'm talking about, that it's there. I could put anything on these screens. I want you to see that it's there. I-, I want you to be able to mark that passage so you can go home and study it. I want you to be able to investigate these things. During one of Paul, the Apostle Paul, during one of the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys, he went to this place called Berea, and something really special happened there that I want to share with you. Uh, Paul was in Berea, and, and Acts chapter 17 tells us about this. He preached to the unbelieving Jews, and when he was there preaching them, it says this in Acts 17, verse 11. It says, the people received the message with great eagerness, and listen to this, and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And these were unbelievers examining the Scripture every day. Examining what Paul said about the Messiah. So how much more should believers be examining the Scriptures to make sure that teachings are true? Church, we need to be in Scripture as believers. Then we won't easily fall prey to the wolves who try and slip in among us. That's not the only reason to be in Scripture. Paul goes on. Look at verse 19. He says, everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So, Paul commends these Christians for their obedience to God and he encourages them to continue on. And the way Paul put it was to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. There's been some confusion in the past for some people about what he meant by innocent about what is evil. Uh, This doesn't mean, Christians, that we are ignorant about the vile, evil things taking place in our society. I mean, if we were, how could we stand up for what's right? How could we fight for righteousness if we are ignorant of the evil all around us? There's a reason That Christians were on the forefront of the fight for the abolition of slavery. There's a reason that Christians are on the forefront of the fight for the the lives of the unborn. There's a reason that Christians are fighting for the sanctity of marriage and the dignity of children today. It's because we recognize the evil in our society. But we can know what evil is without participating in it. Someone once paraphrased Paul's statement Be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Someone paraphrased it this way. I want to see you as experts in good and not even beginners in evil. Look, the same way you don't need to test water to see if it's wet, you don't need to test evil to see if it's dangerous. So we need to recognize it, and then we need to reject it in our lives. And we need to fight for what's right. But how do we do that? How do we recognize evil and reject it? Once again... We need to be in Scripture. Listen to what the psalmist said. Psalm 119, verse 11. It says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. But maybe you're here and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, but but Andrew, sometimes it's just, it's hard in this life, right? It's hard. Sin is everywhere. And our world flaunts it. And they mock us for not participating. And and the devil's trying to devour us in our churches and in our families and in temptation. And we start to feel like it's hopeless. Have you ever felt that way? So believer, never forget the truth that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God will have the victory. Evil will come to an end. And God's people will enjoy the victory for all eternity. But for now, God is patiently waiting for others to come to him in faith. And he allows us to endure these difficulties so that we would grow strong in our faith. But to grow strong, we need to be in scripture. So let's do that. Look what Paul says next. Verse 21. It says, Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you. As do Lucius, Jason, Sosipater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who's the city's director of public works, and our brother, Quartus, send you their greetings. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all of you. Amen. Now let's stop here for just a second. Verse 24, by the way. Uh, in your Bibles, as you're looking at, be in brackets, maybe italicized, might even be a footnote at the bottom of your Bible there. And it's marked this way because this verse isn't found in some of the oldest Greek manuscripts that have been discovered. So that's the reason that it's indicated like this. However, it's consistent with Paul's writing and with the truths of Scripture. So I wanted to be sure to include it. But our main focus is what lies before it. Paul had already mentioned a number of Christians in this chapter. If you were here two weeks ago, you remember that. And now he mentions a few more. Now the difference, with the exception of Phoebe that we saw last time, the difference is all those Christians he mentioned before, they were in Rome. The believers that he mentions here are the Christians who were with him. And we have some idea of who a few of these individuals were from some other supporting scriptures. Of course, the individual we know most about from the Bible is Timothy. Timothy was one of Paul's closest co-laborers in Christ Jesus. Paul called Timothy his true son in the faith. But but I think there's something significant for us to take away from this little list of names, and I don't want us to miss it. Uh, sometimes as Christians, we tend to see heroes of the faith like Paul as these larger-than-life individuals, too 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 incredible, too unlike us to be relatable. But that's far from true. You see, it's true that Paul was a champion of the faith, a bold preacher, an apostle called by Jesus Christ. But Paul was not a lone ranger. Uh, More often than not, Paul, Paul was with other Christians. The list of his missionary teams, his co-workers in Christ, that list, it's a long list. Paul... Paul saw the greatness of the Christian community, and he wanted to be in it no matter where he was. That's important, because I want us to understand that the next key to living victoriously in enemy territory, believers, is that we need to be in fellowship with other Christians. Now, I'm not saying that we can never be with the unchurched, unbelievers, the unsaved. I mean, if that was the case, how would we ever share the gospel? But what I am saying is that too many Christians ignore the fellowship of believers. And being with the family of Christ, for some Christians, becomes a -a once-a-week obligation or an occasional burden rather than a key part of our lives. Christians have been called to bear each other's burdens, to rejoice and mourn with one another, to comfort each other, to watch out for one another, help each other in need. But how can we do this if we're not with each other? Now, some Christians are just too proud to see the greatness of the Christian community. Others are too spiritually immature to realize how much more difficult life will be without the family of Christ. I learned something this week. I was several years behind on this news, uh, so maybe a few of you know it. But a few years ago, the government of Nepal banned people from climbing Mount Everest all by themselves. Maybe you didn't know that some people try and do that. But not anymore. You see, this climb is so dangerous that any number of things can kill you. Uh, There's exposure, mountain sickness, hypothermia, avalanches, falls, all sorts of things that that any climber might face. Yeah, but those climbers who make it to the very top, they have to go through what's called the death zone. The death zone is the final 4,000 feet to the summit of Mount Everest. And when you get there, there's all sorts of new dangers that you'll face. You face things like the potential of fluid building up in your lungs. You face the potential of a heartbeat that's so rapid you could enter into cardiac arrest. The oxygen levels are decreased so greatly at that altitude that many people start to make poor judgment calls, poor decisions. They have a hard time walking. They even start to hallucinate. So a rule was made that every climber at least needs to have one guide with them. Makes a lot of sense. After all, plenty of people have died trying to climb Mount Everest. There are still bodies littered on the mountain as a constant reminder of that, including the bodies of climbers who tried to face those dangers all alone. Now, most of us would agree that willingly facing that many dangers alone, it would be foolish. I don't think any of us would do that. Church, we're told in the Bible that as followers of Jesus, this world is going to hate us. That the devil is prowling around looking to devour us. And that trials await us in this life. Now, we wouldn't face the dangers of Mount Everest alone. Why do we face the constant dangers of this world and this life alone? Now, I understand because I've had believers say this to me. They'll say, yeah, but Andrew, Jesus is always with me. And amen. That's absolutely true. But it's also true that Jesus gave us the church. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5 that Jesus loves the church. And the Bible has commanded us that we need to be with the church. Believers, being in fellowship with our family in Christ, it's important as we walk through this life. Paul ends his letter this way in verse 25. He says, Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel... The message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul concludes this letter by turning our attention to God. God, the one who is worthy of glory and the one who is able to establish them in accordance with the gospel. And the gospel revealed that which was once a a mystery. And that word mystery is talking about what was previously unknown. And specifically that mystery was God's plan for bringing together Jews and Gentiles into the same spiritual family through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's, it's that gospel truth that brought together this incredible church in Rome. It's that gospel truth that's brought us together here in Oxford, Florida. And it's that same gospel that will establish us. You see, the word establish there in the Greek, it, it's talking about being strengthened, being made stable, being set firmly in place. Uh, we need to be established in accordance with the gospel. You see, if we're not captivated by the truth of the gospel believers, well then we will be spiritually immature and we will easily be captivated by false teachings. If we do not stand firmly on the gospel truth, well then we'll be morally unstable and we will easily fall into sin. Being firmly rooted in the gospel isn't going to keep us from trials, temptation, and terrible false teachers, but it will keep us from being easily swayed by these things. Uh, There's a building in Mexico City called the Torre Mayor building. I may have said that wrong. But the Torre Mayor building is 738 feet tall. But that's not its claim to fame. See, the the thing it's most known for is that the Torre Mayor building is known as one of the strongest buildings in the world. And that's not just a lot of talk. This was proven in 2003, a 7.6 magnitude earthquake hit the area. And all the workers inside the Torre Mayor building, well, they just kept working. In fact, they worked the whole time. And the reason for that is because they didn't even know that an earthquake was happening. They didn't feel any of the tremors. They had to hear about it from other people that this earthquake occurred. It's because the building absorbed all that activity so well. And understand, being in a strong building didn't keep them from the earthquake, but being in a strong building kept them from harm during the earthquake. And look, believers, being rooted in the gospel won't keep you from facing temptation, the temptation to sin, the temptation to abandon the fellowship of believers. Being rooted in the gospel won't keep false teachers from coming into your path. But being rooted in the gospel will help you resist these things and will keep you from being harmed by these things. Through these we can be found standing strong. God is able to strengthen his people and keep us firmly rooted in him and that happens when we stand fast on the gospel truth that same gospel that brought us into the family of God see the third key to living victoriously in enemy territory is that we need to stand firmly on the gospel we need to be established in it paul knew just how important that was see there was another church that paul ministered to is the church in galatia And there was a time when false teachers came to that church. They preached a false gospel there. Paul heard about this. And Paul knew that if the believers followed a false gospel, they were going to fall into a lot of dangers as a result of that. This was a serious thing for Paul. In fact, listen to how seriously Paul considered this matter to be. Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, Paul wrote this to that church. He said, I am astonished As we've already said, so now I say again. If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. We need, church, we need to get the gospel right and stand firmly on it. We need to be established in it. Believers, this world and the devil, they hate us. They would love it if we would abandon our faith, or at the very least, stay silent about it. Because of this, there are many spiritual dangers that we will face in this life if we faithfully live for Jesus Christ. But let's not be ignorant of these things. And and let's not be arrogant and think that we're never going to come up against these things. Instead, let's be in Scripture so that we won't be caught off guard by these things. Let's be in the fellowship of believers so that we won't get worn down and discouraged without finding our family in Christ there to help us. And let's stand firmly on the gospel truth so that we will not be moved in our faith. Church, here's the truth this morning. God's word, God's truth, and God's people are key to standing firm in the midst of evil. God's word, God's truth, God's people. Which of these things, though, do we need to be working on in our own lives? Which of these things do we need to be committing to, taking more seriously because we realize we haven't been? Maybe it's fellowshipping with other believers. Maybe it's desiring and actually spending time with Christians more often. Maybe it's that we need to get in Scripture on a daily basis. We haven't been doing that. Maybe we need to reexamine how firmly we are standing on the gospel truth. But believers, whichever of these it may be, let's commit to these things so that we can live victoriously in this world. If you're here and Jesus Christ is not your Savior, you've never given your life to him, I want you to understand if you were to search around, you'd find a lot of different gospels presented to you in this life. People will tell you uh, that you'll be made right with God if only you'll give their church enough money or if only you'll go to church enough or if you do these things or they'll tell you that you can be saved but then you must keep on doing these things if you want to continue to be saved. You'll hear all sorts of gospel messages from people. That's what they'll call them at least. But I want you to know what the Bible says and I want you to know where it says it in the Bible. So I'm going to lay it out for you. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 verse 23 that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. In other words, we can't make it to God on our own merit because of our sin, all those bad things that we have done. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin, the payment, the result, is death. Now That's not just talking about physical death. We're all going to die physically. It's talking about an eternal death separated from God in a place of torment called hell. That's bad news. That's bad news. The good news is this. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Jesus, Jesus is the only one who is providing the way of escape from hell. How did he do that? Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins so we could be pardoned from hell so that we could be forgiven. That's what Jesus did. And praise God, Jesus didn't stay in the grave. Romans 10, 9 says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And friend, that's the gospel truth. And that's from God's word. And if you have never accepted that forgiveness Jesus offers, you can do that right now. You can do that before you leave. Would you pray with me? Friend, if that's where you're at, if you can't say with confidence that Jesus is your Savior, that you've been pardoned from that penalty of hell, please know that you can change that right now. If only you will go to the Lord in faith. Romans 10.13 says, Who- whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can do that right now. You can follow me in a simple prayer like this. And friend, I promise you, I promise you on the authority of what God's Word says, that if you pray this in faith, you will be saved. You can pray something like, Father, I know that I'm a sinner. God, I know that I've broken Your commands. I know that I've sinned against You. But I know that Jesus died on the cross for me. I believe that He did not stay in the grave, but that He rose powerfully from the dead. And I'm asking You, Jesus, I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins. I'm asking you to be my Savior. Today I'm giving my life to you. I want you to take it because I know you can do more with it than I can. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who's made that decision, I pray that they would tell someone before they leave. But if there's anybody here still not sure, they still have questions, they want to talk, they want to pray with someone, Father, I ask that they'd be willing to come down here and talk with me during this final song that we will sing. I pray that they wouldn't leave this way, separated from you as they came in here. And Father, for those of us who have accepted the gospel truth, who have been brought into the family of Christ, help us to see the greatness of of the community of believers, to desire to be with each other, not just, not just on Sundays, but as often as we can be. And teach us what it means when we're together to pray for each other, bear each other's burdens, rejoice and mourn with one another, to encourage each other. Teach us to be faithful to be in Scripture each and every day, so that we won't be so easily deceived by others so that we could stand firmly in the truth and help us to stand firm on the gospel. Help us never to forget the gospel truth that saved us. Help us never, never to turn our back on it. Help us to be faithful to you to the very end, like so many of our brothers and sisters in Christ have been, like Polycarp. Help us to be faithful to the end. We know that you're with us as we walk through this enemy territory. I pray that we would be encouraged as we walk through it together. Father, please continue to be here at First Baptist Church of Oxford. I pray that your spirit would continue to keep us united, would keep us focused on you, would help us to love one another more and more as that day approaches when you do return for us. But until then, Father, we love you. And we thank you for loving us so much more. In Jesus' name, amen.